If, there it is. And uh, if you will stand, let me read our text tonight before we dive in. It's Acts chapter 20. We're gonna start in verse 17. And if you do, there, there are Bibles underneath your chairs if you wanna grab one as well. So Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I, covet no one's, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanying him to the ship. The reading of God's word. You guys can be seated. Leaving is, it's difficult. Saying goodbye, it's one of the hardest things you have to do. And I remember uh, my wife and I, we bought at that time, about seven years ago, 
the cheapest house we could find in Corvallis. It was in Southtown, and we bought this little shack in Southtown. We didn't know it was the ghetto. It's all we could afford, and so we lived there. And um, it was a little fixer-upper, and we put our blood, our sweat, and probably too much money into that pit. We had rat problems. I could tell you stories about that, but I won't. In the winter, the pipes would freeze. And so in a lot of ways, I, <laughs> I hated that house, and I wanted out of that house. And then we sold it. And in all honesty, when I think of that house, all I can think about are the fond memories. And I remember leaving the house and having to say goodbye to the house. Because in all honesty, goodbyes are hard, even when it comes to houses. And here we have in our text, one of the greatest goodbyes in all of scripture. Paul's returning to Jerusalem and he has a layover in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus prior to this for three years, living and ministering among them. And now he calls all the elders together, all the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come so he can say his proper goodbye. And, you know, if you think about it, we're, we're a society that, well, we value last words. We weigh, we weight last words differently than we just weight common, average, normal words. They're precious. So what's Paul going to say? What's, what's he going to frame? How's he going to speak to these precious Ephesians to which he has fallen in love with? What's he going to say? Now, before we kind of get into the text and what Paul actually says, I think it'd be a disservice if we didn't realize just how emotional this text really is. I don't think we can read it with any sterile detachment. The image called to mind by Paul's meeting with the Ephesians is that of a, a group of soldiers soiled by the dust and blood of war, drawing together with their revered colonel or general awaiting last words of wisdom. Or it actually reminds me of um, a famous speech in Tolkien's, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, the last book, which is The Return of the King. And Aragon, who's a great king, he assembles before these tired soldiers, and this is what he says. He says, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all the bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and scattered shields when the age of men come crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. That's the kind of emotional impact Paul's word to the Ephesians should be communicating to us all. I mean, look at it, verse 36. He says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see him. That's kind of the flavor of this so what, what, what's this emotional plea? What are the kind of marching orders going to be when it comes to Paul and this last message to the Ephesian? 
Well, he gives them marching orders. He gives them a guide to ministry, a guide to life. And hopefully this gift, this calling, this guide book to ministry would echo into the hearts and minds of the people and the leaders in Ephesus for generations. And I want to highlight three aspects of this kind of ministry blueprint, this guide, this guide to ministry that Paul is enforcing and embracing and communicating to the Ephesians to live out. Now, just as a side, remember, these are, he's, he gathered the, the Ephesian elders, so there's a sense in which this has to do most specifically with elders, but it actually bears weight on all of us as a church body. So, in short, this is Paul's message. Ministry is first about giving all that you are, and second, with all that you say, and third, while watching out for God's glory and for the sake of others. Ministry is about giving all that you are and all that you say while watching out to God's glory and the good of others. Go with me to verse 18, which says this. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Paul was a a bright man, a genius, and he could have lived his life in luxury. He could have lived his days in an ivory tower, yet he lived among the people, Not, not over them. He lived with them. He didn't kind of carpool into a community and to a context and to an environment and then carpool out. He didn't go into a community minister for a little bit and then leave. No, he stayed and lived and ministered in a context and with a people. Now, Victoria talked about short-term mission trips. I love short-term mission trips. I'm an advocate of short-term mission trips. I'm over short-term mission trips. And yet there's kind of a a problem and one downside when it comes to short-term missions, and it's this, that you go somewhere and you minister for a week or so, and then you leave. You don't set up any roots. You, You go, you minister, you love people, and then you actually have to leave. And that's not what Paul does here. He actually sets up roots. He's an insider. He is there enough for things to get complicated because short-term mission trips, you go, you minister, but you're there long enough for it to be glorious and hopefully helpful, but not long enough to get that messy. And yet it's messy in Ephesus. It's terribly messy. I mean, just go look how it just started. Paul gets into Ephesus and he's talking to these, these men and he said, Hey, have you been baptized? And they're like, well, we've been baptized by the baptism of John, but not of Jesus. So he rebaptizes them. All right. Now you just think about how, comp- how theological complicated that is. That's the first thing that happens when he gets to Ephesus. And then after that, he gets kicked out of the synagogue, which is where he usually would go. And then he, gets, he starts teaching in the hall of Tyrannius. And after that, he, people start stealing his clothes, literally stealing his clothes and using them superstitiously to heal. And then you get this huge riot in Ephesus where people are literally chanting like, Artemis is God, more or less kill Paul. There's this huge riot and he's almost taken out. 
and killed. I mean, Paul's in Ephesus for three years, enough to even just in our text in two chapters for it to get really messy, really, really messy because he was ministering, he was living, he was giving his life away in a context and an environment to the point where he actually got in the mess of it all. He didn't kind of just throw some gospel grenades and hide under a church fortress. He was part and parcel of the Ephesus culture. And our text says he did it with humility. With humility, he didn't have a savior complex. What, Jesus, what Paul did is he just pointed people to the savior. And actually it makes perfect sense because Paul's favorite designation for himself is a servant. He was a servant. And I get the sense in which when Paul is actually giving this talk, when he's talking about living amongst the Ephesians for three years and he's saying goodbye, that he probably pauses and he gets a little overwhelmed emotionally. He sees a woman in the audience who was converted out of witchcraft. I mean, this was the kind of the, the Vegas of the ancient Near East. And he sees all that she left, how her family abused her and turned their back on her. And yet, he sees her smile. He probably can't even get through this goodbye without, frankly, being undone. I mean, no wonder our author tells us that he ministered among them with tears, with tears. I mean, I mean, how could he not? He loved the Ephesian church and the Ephesian people like he loved his family because they were his family. So Paul gave all that he had, his life to them. And he thought of them as more important than he even thought of himself, which is a, just a functional definition of humility, which is so simple. We know this. We know that when we do ministry, that when we set up roots, that when we're trying to share the gospel, that we should live in the community and love the community. And yet it's really hard. I mean, I just think of hospitality. I love hospitality as an idea, but here's the thing. I get tired around 10. I'm, I'm a morning person. So for me, hospitality has boundaries. It has time boundaries. And if you're still in my house by 10 PM, it starts getting a little awkward. Leave or else, right? I mean, I, I, I remember I, um, this is so American and Western, but I was in a, in a small group. And when it was, when I thought it was time to go and I was tired, I would just jiggle my wife's purse informing her like it's time to go. I mean, there was nothing subtle about this. And yet I love the idea of hospitality as kind of a concept, but when it's true and costly, it's hard because true hospitality is always an inconvenience. You're always giving up something when it comes to true hospitality. And that's what Paul did. We read later in First Thessalonica, or that First Thessalonians 2, verse 7. This is what Paul says, and it just gives a, a beautiful framework to what we're talking about here. And it says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves because you had become so very dear to us. I mean, that's, that's ministry. That's what it's all about. It's about living in a context, in a community. It's about thinking the best of that culture and community. 
I mean, I, I, I was hearing um, a church planter in another part of the America, and he was just talking about a city, and frankly, he was just listing off all the ugly things about his city. Pollution and this and that, all the things. And I remember just thinking, man, how are you going to love the people if you don't even love the city? Because the city is made up of the people. But Paul didn't struggle with that. He lived in the city, loved the city. And so he declares to the Ephesians, hey, you know how I lived. You need to live in the city like that. You need to, in one sense, tabernacle, incarnate yourself into a community and be part and parcel to that community. But ministry, though it, it is incarnational in that sense, it's, it's also more than that. We also need to give our voice to something. We can't be passive. Verse 20 says this. Paul says, now I, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you go down to verse 27, it says this. I did not, this is Paul speaking, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now it's been said that Francis Assisi said, preach the gospel, and if you need to, use words. And every time anyone hears that, they go, that sounds really good. That sounds like a Hallmark card. That sounds glorious. But the problem is it's a half-truth. It's a half-truth. Because it's right, we, we should live lives consistent with the gospel. We should live lives in such a way that people go, huh. But the problem is, it's the, the problem that we have in Romans 1. It's the problem that if you do that, if you don't actually audibly talk about the gospel, if you just live a life consistent with the gospel, then like Roman 1 says, you have only given people enough information to damn them to hell. You haven't given them any hope or any salvation or any message. Now, I say this not as an English major who likes words, but words are so important and so necessary. Our voice is so important because the message we have to communicate is a, is a message contained in words. It's contained in a book. And it's a message meant to be heralded, to be spoken, to be declared, to be testified. I mean, just look at all of the different verbs that Paul has in regards to this. In verse 20, Paul declares. Also in verse 20, he teaches. In 24, he testifies. In 25, he proclaims. And then in 31, he admonishes. All words about audible speech. But if we're honest, in order to share God's word, in order to declare God's word, in order to testify or teach God's word, we... Well, we got to know it. We got to know what to say. Because knowing always precedes doing. Knowing a message always precedes sharing and teaching that message. And so what is it that he was so preoccupied by? What was it? What was the message that just burned so deep within his heart that he couldn't know what to do with it and he just had to get it out? What is it that he just had to preach, had to teach? Verse 21. Repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What I love about Paul, though when you read anything about him and you hear his just the beauty of his, his writing and his speech, I mean, this guy's a genius. And yet what I love about Paul is 
He's a one-trick pony. He's got one message. He's got one soapbox. Christ and him crucified. I mean, the context changes a little bit from city to city, but the, the message, the message is always the same. He's always on message because for Paul everything he could do was to just make the gospel simple enough in whatever culture and city he was in for them to understand it receive it accept it and respond to it repent and believe the gospel change your mind about who is God around here put your faith in Jesus as the only hope of your salvation that's that's what he taught and he did it from house to house so much so that actually his conscience was clean. It says that um, if you look, he, he talks about that, hey, my, when it comes to the, my blood, it's not on my hands. My conscience is clear. And what's he talking about? He's saying, I declared the word so much to you that I'm actually, I'm, I'm, before God I stand not condemned at all. I was faithful in preaching the gospel. Because Paul desired the salvation of the Ephesians deeply. And I think if we are honest, every religion promises salvation. Salvation might look a little bit different, but every religion, it, it, every religion has a promised land. It, it has some desirous salvation, some desirous heaven, and they always have a way to get there. There's always a, a blessing, a way to wholeness, a way of hope. And you know, I think the wonderful and the unique things about the Christian gospel is that it's something that Paul wants to stress in relationship to all other religion because of how it affects us and how we actually receive that salvation. I was reminded this week because about, oh goodness, it was probably six or seven years ago, I was at a Navigator conference and I just so happened to be sitting uh, around the campus uh, or a table around with the campus minister of Utah State University. And this is like, when I'm talking about unreached territory, I mean, it's like all Mormon, okay? And he was sharing his stories and they're fascinating. And so I just said, what did you do? Because he was like a couple years into this, this new work doing ministry there. And he said, well, I came and kind of, when you think of like, how do you plant a, a ministry or a campus ministry? He goes, well, we went and we go, we're going to love them. We're just going to serve them and love them. And he goes, it wasn't too far into that that we realized you can't really outserve a Mormon. So he goes, so we kind of chucked that and we're like, okay, we're not going to do service projects anymore. And so he goes, so we just read a lot of books on how to do apologetics and kind of defend Christianity and show the, the differences. And we thought that was going to happen. And he said, and there was some good stuff that happened, but eventually when you're talking, he said, they would just get a glazed look on their face and the conversation was over. You might've kind of won the debate, but you never win the man. And so they said, so we didn't know what to do until we finally decided that we were going to talk about the one thing that we know and knew that they yearned for, that they didn't have in their religion. Grace. Grace. The campus minister started talking about how, how kind of hidden sin is in Utah many times, and they don't talk about it. And he said, and then we started talking about grace, unfettered grace, and the backdrop of that unrelenting pressure to be perfect and work your way to toward God, it made the gospel, it made grace just so wonderfully 
glorious. And Paul, like this campus minister, he, what, does he, what does it say that he testified to? The gospel of what? The gospel of the grace of God. Because salvation comes through grace and grace alone. That's the, the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. Grace alone. And so I, I think sometimes, and maybe it's just because I didn't really grow up in the church that we kind of throw around these words and we don't really know definitionally what they mean. Here's, here's a, an illustration for grace. So imagine sitting in a classroom and imagine you're about to take a test. All, you're all alone. It's just you and the teacher. It's a hundred question test and you start sweating. You start fidgeting because you slept through every lecture. And last night when you should have been studying, you were just binging on Netflix. And so you're sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to bomb it. I'm going to bomb it. And you get your test and you just look at it and you're like, I don't even know if I'm going to get my name right. I'm just so anxious about this. And you look down the first question. You're like, it looks like it's in a foreign language. I literally have no idea how to answer it. And in the midst of that anxiety, in the midst of that fear, in the midst of knowing that you're just going to fail and bomb and get a zero, the teacher walks over and sits next to you and says, number one is A, number two is B, number three is D, and on and on and on and on and on. Until at the end, when you finish, he just writes on the top, 100. And then he goes, that's grace. That's why in one sense, in a performance-driven culture like us, it's so offensive because it doesn't seem right or fair or just. Like how dare God do something like that? And that's grace. That's Paul's obsession. Is that ours? And that's frankly why he proclaimed it so much because it was doing so many amazing things in his own life and so many amazing things in the life of others that he just couldn't get beyond this message that actually God took the test for us. So we, so we just like the campus minister, need to open up our voices and declare and to speak and to testify of the gospel of grace. And we do it in the context like Paul when we live in a culture when we live in a city, when we love this city. And then lastly, lastly, we need to pay attention to yourselves, is what Paul says. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says, watch out. Watch out. And he first says, watch out for yourself, for your own holiness, for your own purity, Watch out for compromise. I mean, this is Ephesus, the, the Vegas of the day. I mean, it was expected that they were going to compromise. And he says, watch out. Watch out. I think it's no coincidence at all that when Paul talks about finding elders, when he says, what characteristics make up an elder? In First Timothy and Titus, what does he list? Abilities, skills, knowledge, character. Other than teaching, every single one is about 
character, about the person, about their holiness. That's why a pastor long ago in England, Robert Murray McChaney, he once said this, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. My own personal holiness. I mean, what, what does the average person look for in a church? Great technology, maybe great music or great programs or a, a slick youth program. Like, what, what do you look for? I've never heard someone say, I'm looking for a church that's holy, that's set apart within a context. And not merely that, but they were to be on guard for wolves outside of the church and within the church, when you, with, which when you think about it is really interesting. Because all the, we talk all about the wolves outside, right? We can name them. We could just be like, oh yeah, they're, they're not keen on Christians. But Paul says, watch out for wolves from within. From within. Marshall Shelley, who is, he was the editor-in-chief of Leadership Journal, he wrote a book, and I just love the title of the book. It was, What Do You Do With Well-Intentioned Dragons? And the whole book is talking about, in his, um, in his words, how do you minister to people who are unintentionally, who unintentionally leave ulcers, strain relationships, and hard feelings in their wake? How do you minister to people like that? I mean, we, we often talk about the, the pressures from outside the gates of the church, but more churches have splits, more churches fail, more churches actually just stop gathering together all because of things that happen from within. That's how important this is to Paul. Now, I mean, I think lest we get the wrong idea, the really interesting thing is Ephesus at this time, the, the church in Ephesus, it was really healthy. It was a healthy church and Paul is still giving this admonition. He's still saying, hey, I know things are healthy. I know things are great, but guess what? Watch out. Watch out for compromise. Watch out. Because as one guy who was talking about his own, it was, I think it was the Brethren denomination, he said, looking back historically at why they kind of moved so liberal, he said the first generation preached the gospel. The second just assumed it. And by the third generation, they all rejected it. And that's, that's Paul's concern here. He's concerned with them compromising. And yet it's, it's really hard when you think about it. I mean, putting all of these things together, living in a culture, but not being of the culture, you know, preaching the gospel, but then also doing it with our lives. I mean, we're supposed to love the wolves, but we're supposed to guard the wolves. I mean, think of all the paradoxes, the tension of Christian ministry. I mean, we're supposed to speak the truth, but do it in what? Speak the truth in love. I mean, one of the kind of classic cases is Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And so one of the, the, the kind of triumphs of any non-Christian, they know one Bible verse, and it's do not judge lest you be judged, right? They know that. That's like their John 3.16. And I think it's really interesting because you just keep reading, and then Jesus talks about, hey, and when, this is how you judge good fruit from bad fruit. And I remember the first, I was like, what? Okay, don't judge, but when you do judge, this is how you judge. I mean, we keep these in tension and there's, there's, there's reasons for it and I'm not going to go into it, but Christianity really is a religion of paradoxes, right? The first will be last and ministry is hard. And how do you balance it all? And if you've ever lived in a context and in a culture and tried to minister and love people, you know, you've fallen prey to something either to compromise or to being too bold and 
inevitably we fall off the horse one way or the other. And if you're at all like me, if you're kind of a betting man, you might go, okay, Paul gives this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful goodbye address. And he gives them their marching orders. How do you think they're going to do? How do you think they're going to do? Luckily, none of us actually have to wonder. We have an answer in the book of Revelation. Because in chapter 2, Jesus comes to the church of Ephesus and he speaks to them. And this is what he says. First, Jesus actually approves of them. And he says this. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary yet. This you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we should go eat. Yeah, right? They did it. Well, then you get to verse four. And Jesus says this in verse four and what he has against them. He says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. You have left your first love. Their hatred of evil and their vigilance against the deceptive false apostles and their perseverance, it's good. It's what Paul exhorts them to do. But then Jesus commends them. Then Jesus actually says, but your deeds of love, they're drying up. Your deeds of love are drying up. They were, we could say, cruel Calvinists or they were orthodox but loveless. They're those people that just love a good fight. Love a good fight. But they've forgotten their first love. They knew what they were against. They just had forgotten what they were for. Which, if you think about it, is really sobering. It's really terrifying. I mean, one of the greatest goodbye speeches of all times, and it inevitably ends up in disappointment. Because they couldn't put all the pieces together, all the pieces of ministry together for one holistic ministry. In fifth grade, I played on the best AAU basketball team that you could get on. It was elite. I was not elite, but it was elite. And so we had a, like a playbook that was literally as big as most textbooks. And I remember the first time when I was in fifth grade, I got called into the game. It was towards the end of it. We had, we had a big lead. So, you know, I, I get in the game and I'm like, okay, we have like 10 inbound plays. And I'm like, which one is it? And he calls out a number and I'm like Rolodexing like, hey, which one is it? And I'm all, you know, thumbs in my mind. And so I go one way. I'm supposed to go another way. It was a complete disaster. Turn over the ball. They score. Coach, timeout. I remember he just stares at me and he goes, Brucker, bench. I was, Brucker bench calls a timeout with one look I'm sitting on the bench because I didn't put it all together I mean Paul sets out this great game plan just like my coach did but they fumble it they fumble it it was a wonderful message but long term it wasn't receptive and if you know anything about this text if you know anything about the text here and his speech, it actually mirrors almost verbatim another speech in the Bible. And it's the speech that Jesus gives in John chapter 17. It's his high priestly prayer. 
And I think it's really interesting because you read the whole thing and he's talking about unity and, and knowing and being aware and watching out for wolves and all these things. And then you get into the very last thing that he says in this glorious kind of goodbye talk. And it says this, 26, chapter 17. I made you know to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may in them and I in them. I mean, he, he ends this whole talk with love. He ends it with love. The very thing that the Ephesians, 35 years after this speech, this goodbye speech, the one thing that they lacked, a lovelessness. And I think there's something really encouraging because if you're anything like me, I know that I'm gonna make mistakes. I'm gonna fall off the proverbial horse one way or the other. It's gonna get messy and I'm not know, gonna know what to do. I mean, the branch as a church, as a local community, as we invest in this city, as we love this city, we know that there are gonna be mistakes. But we know and we can learn one thing from this church in Ephesus and the elders of the church in Paul's preaching of this text. And it's this, that we can't forget our first love. And one of the ways that we don't forget our first love is we just keep preaching. We kept testifying. And we keep, like Paul, saying, all I want to do is know Christ and make him known. And at the end, maybe, like Paul, we can say, but we don't account our lives of any value nor as precious to ourselves so that we can finish our course in the ministry that we received from the Lord Jesus. To do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We know we need to live with people. We know we need to teach people. We need, know we need to watch out for people. But the thing that binds all three together is love. It's love. God, um, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful for your son who loved us, loved us so much that he would die for us. And we pray that we would be more faithful, that we would um, know how much you love us, and in turn, we would share that love with others. And we just pray all this in your son's name. Amen.